I was your classic busy mom. Get back here! Husband and I both worked. Babysitter bailed. Three kids. Oh, careful. You know, busy. But it was the little things that really drove me to the edge. Laundry that piled up. Garbage not getting taken out. And apparently, everyone in my family thought that light bulbs just changed themselves. Anyway, one day I was making BLTs for lunch when I said, Honey, can you change the light bulb? The next day I was making bacon for the salad and I said, Can you set the tape? It was like, oh. Change your life with bacon. Honey, could you mow the... Well, there are many things that promise to change your life. Very few actually deliver on the promise. Bacon comes close, though, but, but not quite. You know, for the next three weeks as we approach Easter Sunday, we're going to be looking at three days and three events that have the power to change our lives. Day one is Good Friday and the cross of Christ. Day two is Holy Saturday and the time that Christ was in the tomb. And day three is Easter Sunday and the resurrection of Christ. So you've already been given a heads up. Let me repeat this message is a PG-13. Uh, we're going to hear and see some graphic descriptions and images of, uh, of the cross of Christ and the suffering that he endured for us. Um, so letter A in your outline, let's get started, the suffering of Christ. How many of y'all saw the movie The Passion? Uh, just looks like almost everybody saw that. You know when it was first released, I don't know if any of y'all were, were here at that time, but um, we actually the church, we rented Telshore 12 Theater, and we watched The Passion as our worship service on one Sunday. And believe it or not, some people actually bought refreshments to take into the theater. How many of you know that the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus is not an occasion for popcorn, nachos, and Twizzlers? Needless to say, there were a whole lot of leftovers left over when the movie was over. Because once it started, you didn't feel like eating. If you saw the movie, you know it was brutal, it was graphic, and it was bloody. And it was also, I think, the first time many of us began to understand just the degree to which Christ suffered for us. Now, as difficult as it is, there are benefits to reflecting upon the suffering of Christ and, and, and the cross. What it cost him to make you his and me. The cross, when it's understood and when it's embraced, has the power to change us. So number one, let's look at Christ suffers at the hands of the Jewish authorities. <clears throat> now the night of Jesus' arrest, he knew what he was about to experience. And after sharing the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray for the strength to face what he was about to suffer. He is arrested. He is taken to the Sanhedrin. If you don't know what the Sanhedrin is, it's kind of like the Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Vatican all rolled into one. And uh, they meet in the middle of the night for an illegal mockery of a trial, which only had one goal, and the goal was not justice. The goal was to find a reason to put Jesus to death. And after Jesus confessed that he indeed is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, 
he is found guilty of blasphemy and he is subjected to the first of many savage beatings. Mark 14, 65 says, Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him. They struck him with their fists and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. So Jesus is repeatedly, he is slapped, he's punched in the face. He is beaten with wooden rods. His beard is pulled out by the handfuls. As was prophesied, by the way, hundreds of years before in the book of Isaiah. If you'll see Isaiah 50, verse 6. This is talking about Christ. I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. And after they had had their fun, Jesus is taken to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who he sends him to King Herod, the, the one of three Roman or one of three governors that were ruling over the Jews that were appointed by the Romans. And after Herod unsuccessfully tries to bait Jesus into performing a miracle for him, he allows his soldiers, Herod allows his soldiers to continue the violent assault on Jesus with a frenzy of hate-filled words and blows. And then he sends him back to Pilate, which initiates the most severe of Christ's beatings. So number two, Christ suffers at the hands of the Roman guard. John 19.1 says, Then Pilate took Jesus and had him scourged. Several years ago, we did kind of this little play at the church on Good Friday. And we had this guy dressed as Jesus and uh, took the robe off of his back. And, and they mock, scourged him. And, and the instrument they used was, was just some soft cotton shoestrings that were tied onto a handle. And yet, the next day, he was bruised all over his back. Now, we thought it was just great acting that he was wincing with every blow. He was actually wincing in pain from every blow. When we asked him the next year if he would do it again, well, I cannot repeat what he said in church. No, but that's absolutely nothing compared to what Christ went through. The Roman scourge or flagrum consisted of between three and nine strips of braided leather. And on each of these, was, these straps was fastened pieces of sharp pottery, bone, glass, and metal. And they were designed to rip away at the flesh when the person was being flogged. And if you'll watch here as an example from the Passion movie. <laughs> Studies that have been performed on human cadavers show that after 30 to 35 blows, the flesh on the back of a person who was scourged was so shredded you could push away the flesh and see the rib cage. Now the maximum number of blows that could be inflicted on a Roman citizen was 39, but because Jesus was a Jew and not a Roman citizen, there was no limit to the number of blows that he could take, so he likely took 40, 60, 80, 100, or even more. More often than not, those who were scourged didn't survive that. They died of blood loss or infection. 
So, still not being finished having their fun, the soldiers then subject Jesus to even more pain and cruelty. Matthew 27 says the governor's soldiers led Jesus into the fortress and they brought together the rest of the troops. They stripped off Jesus' clothes. They put a scarlet robe, scarlet robe on him. They made a crown out of thorn branches and they placed it upon his head. You know, the thorny vines that grow wild in that area have one to two inch long, nail-hard, sharp thorns. Uh, they're, and these were not just laid upon Christ's head. They were pressed into his scalp and into his face. You see just a, a photo of what that might have looked like. Matthew 27, 29 says, They put a stick in his right hand, and the soldiers knelt down, and they pretended to worship him. They made fun of him. They shouted, Hey, you, king of the Jews. And they spit on him. They took the stick from him and they beat him on the head with it. When the soldiers had finished making fun of Jesus, they took off the robe. They put his own clothes back on him. And they led him off to be nailed to the cross. Number three, Christ suffers crucifixion. The crucifixion has been called the most cruel form of death and execution ever devised. So Christ is stripped naked, and he's forced to lay upon a splintery wooden cross. The soldier in charge, probably the centurion, first of all, places a foot in Jesus' right hand to hold it down as he next drives a long, thick nail, seven to nine inches long, between the bones of the wrist at the base of his hand. And then he repeats the same on his left hand and wrist. Next, Christ's legs are bent in a 45-degree angle, one foot placed upon the other with the toes pointed downward, and a single nail between, between 10 and 12 inches long is driven between the bones of the feet and into the wooden cross. Now, the cross on which Jesus is nailed is then hoisted over and dropped into a narrow hole about two feet deep, and it's wedged into place so that it stands upright. The jolting impact of that cross hitting the bottom of that hole with Christ's weight almost entirely being supported by the nails in his wrist would have caused his, his shoulders to be dislocated, which would make his arms useless. And hanging in that position, there is so much pressure that is upon his diaphragm, Jesus cannot breathe. And the only way he can breathe is to relieve the pressure on his diaphragm by pushing up on the nail in his feet. And then because of fatigue and weakness and searing pain, he can only hold that position for so long before he collapsed back down. Again, being unable to breathe. A person on a cross like Jesus would look like a human yo-yo going up and down that cross, pushing up to take a breath or two and collapsing back down and pushing up to take a breath or two and collapsing back down. <clears throat> when a person is crucified, death can be hastened by breaking his legs because then he can no longer push up on that nail in his feet and he would suffocate. Think for a moment about what Jesus says during those moments when he struggles 
for breath to stay alive. Pushing himself up on the nail in his feet. Think about him praying for those that beat him and drove those nails through his hands and feet and hung him there. Think about him praying for them. And again, as he struggles for a breath, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And stop for a moment and realize who it was that hung upon that cross and why. This is God. God the Son. This is the creator of the universe and everything in it. Including you and I. He could have called 12 legions of angels down from heaven to rescue him. Uh, he could have, with a word, dis destroyed all those evil people that hung him there and this world on which they lived. But because of his great love for you and me, he did not. Because this is what was necessary to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine. He chose to go to the cross and he chose to remain there because of his incomprehensible love for you and me and so that he could make us his. Isaiah 53 says, but he endured the suffering that should have been ours, the pain that we should have borne. But because of our sins, he was wounded, beaten because of the evil that we did. We are healed by the punishment he suffered, made whole by the blows he received. All of us like sheep that were lost each of us going his own way, but the Lord made the punishment fall on him, the punishment all of us deserved. No, Augustine wrote, Jesus loves each of us like we were the only one to love. If you were the only person on the face of this planet that needed a Savior, Christ would have come and died on the cross for just you. That's how personal the cross is. So Jesus hangs on that cross for six hours as the sin of the world is placed upon him. As he experiences hell in our place. And then he cries out, Father, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And he collapses down one last time. And he gives up his spirit. And he dies.
sufferings you and I deserve laid upon him. Let's take a moment to bow our heads and just give him thanks. Could it be in the significance of the cross? So how does Good Friday and how does the cross change us? I'll tell you in far too many ways that I can cover in a hundred sermons, so I've just chosen three ways to address today. Number one, reflecting on the cross gives us a greater appreciation of God's love for us. <clears throat> Romans 5, 7, and 8 says, It's a difficult thing for someone to die for a righteous person. It may even be that someone might dare to die for a good person. Read verse 8 out loud with me. But God has shown how much he loves us. It was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. I have that picture, guys. Did I see how much God, our God and Savior, loves you? That he would do this for you. See how much he loves those you love. He would do this for them. How can we even begin to understand so great a love as this? That would, a love that would compel the creator of the universe to die for us. That he would choose to take the penalty for the sins that we have committed against him upon himself to make us his. The story is told <clears throat> from many years ago. Uh, the brother of a king was caught stealing from the king. The punishment was to be 50 lashes with a wooden rod. So the brother is brought before the king to witness the beating. The brother was forced on his knees, and he was shackled to a post. And as the soldier raised the rod to administer the first blow, the king shouted, Stop. And he walked down from his throne, and he took off his royal robes, and he covered his brother's body with his own body. And he said, resume and show no mercy. Now, I honestly don't know if that story is fact or fiction. If it's fact, I hope and expect that that brother's life was never the same. That his life was changed after experiencing such a great sacrificial love and grace from his king. And that's just a small, small example of what Christ did for you and for me. Experiencing the kind of love that God has for us, that Christ has for us, can't help but change our lives. Don't you agree? Number two, reflecting on the cross gives us a greater appreciation for the truth of the gospel. John 14, 6, Jesus said this. Read it out loud with me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Does it say I am a way? I am one of many ways. What does it say? I am the way. And how many come to the Father except by him? No one. Acts 4, 12, read it out loud with me. Jesus is the only one who can save people. His name is the only power in the world that has been given to save anyone. We must be saved through him alone. 
So how can the Bible, how can Christ and his followers make such a bold and exclusive claim as those? That he is the only way to be saved? Really? That he is the only way to be forgiven? That Jesus and the cross are the only way to be made right with God? Now, when we take time to truly appreciate the cross, it's actually the only thing that makes sense. I mean, the real question to be answered is not how can Christ be the only way to God. The real question is how can the suffering and death of the Son of God be one of many ways to God, which is what many believe. I want you to imagine, and this won't happen, but I want you to imagine that a gang of terrorists would burst through those doors and they stormed into this place with AK-47s and they threatened to kill every single one of you. And they came to me as pastor of this church and they said, the, the, the well-being of the lives of these people, their, their lives are in your hands. You can save them, though. We'll give you several options, ways that you can save them. I says, good, what's, what, how can I save them? Well, give us all the money in your bank account. You know what? You are worth $12.50 to me. I would, I would do that for you. I would. Well, more than one option, yes. You can give us all of your Denver Bronco fan paraphernalia. Of course, you know that would be easy because I have none. But does it not make sense that the terrorists are Denver Bronco fans? And they say, there's another option. You can give us your son. We will mock him and torture him and beat him mercilessly until he dies. Which one will you choose? And I'm like, hmm, let me think for a moment. Can I phone a friend? Why don't we just do all of them? Yeah, why don't we just do all of them? I don't want anybody to accuse me of being narrow-minded or anything like that. Here's the rub. If I gave the life of my son to save your life, when it was not absolutely necessary to give the life of my son, if there was another way I could save you that did not involve giving the life of my son and having him beaten and tortured and mocked, but I chose to give his life anyway, what would you think of me as a father? Cruel, foolish, stupid? Now, the only way that I would ever consider giving the life of my son to save yours is if it was the only way to save your life, and I'm not sure I could do it even then. And it's the same with God, the Father, and the cross. I mean, can we have a picture, guys? If we say there were other ways than this to save us, but God chose to do that to his son anyway? What are we to conclude about God? Foolish, cruel, evil? See, if we say that the cross is one of many different ways to God, we're left with a God that we cannot love or respect or serve. So either the cross is the only way we could be saved, or it's not a way at all. 
Because again, we end up with a God we wouldn't want to love and serve. And dear friends, if that's the only way to God, then people need to hear about it from you and me. Number three, reflecting on the cross gives us a greater appreciation of our salvation. John 19, 30. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Underline those words, it is finished. In the original Greek, it's a single word, to tell us thy. It's a word that when Jesus uttered it, must have shocked the people around him who heard it. It was perhaps the most powerful word that Jesus spoke while he was on this earth, to tell us die. It was a word that declared victory from a place that looked like Christ's defeat. He did not cry, I am finished, as those around might have expected him to cry out. He said, it is finished, to tell us die. You know what, that word, we, we read in Scripture, that word shook the earth, it split rocks, it changed history, it raised saints from the dead, and it tore the temple curtain in two that separated God from his people. To tell us die. It's finished. And this isn't the whimper of a victim or a defeated man. This was the victory cry of a warrior. To tell us die. It is finished. My work, my mission is complete. I successfully accomplished what I came to accomplish. There is nothing left to be done. To tell us die, it's finished. Say that word with me. To tell us die, it is finished. Say it. So, what was finished? The provision for our salvation. 1 Timothy 1.15 says this. I don't think it's in your outline, but it's up here. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners. The word saved is used dozens of times in the New Testament, one of the most misunderstood words in the Bible. We've all heard it before. Repent, and thou shalt be saved. The buses will wait. We've been led to think that salvation is only about having our sins forgiven and being spared from hell. It's much more. Now, the Greek word for salvation, or the Greek word for to save, is the word sozo. Say it, sozo. Word study New Testament defines sozo in this way. Being rescued from death, to find what was lost, to be delivered from disease and demonic oppression, to heal, restore to health, body, soul, and spirit, to save from the punishment and misery of sin and to give eternal life. That's what Christ came to accomplish. To tell us die. It's done. All those belong to those who belong to me. Now, sozo is very similar in meaning to the Hebrew word shalom, which means to experience every blessing to be found in the center of God's will. Well, let's go back to that word to tell us die. You know, when a debt was completely paid, a receipt was given to a debtor, which had the amount that was previously owed, and the word to tell us die was stamped over it. 
It is finished. It's paid in full. This debt is completely forgiven. So when Christ shouted to Telestai, he declared that in his suffering, the penalty for your sin has been paid for. Every lie to Telestai. Every lustful thought to Telestai. Every broken promise to Telestai. Every hurtful word, every failure to Telestai. Adultery, fornication, immorality, pornography to Telestai. Gossip, drunkenness, pride, anger, greed, addiction to Telestai. You're forgiven. All that's necessary is to receive that forgiveness. To be grateful for it. And to be changed by it. If you've accepted Christ's offer of forgiveness through the cross, if you've trusted Christ to be your Savior and Lord, every sin has been forgiven and washed. The slate is clean so that you can live a life of obedience, not motivated out of guilt, fear, or shame, but motivated by appreciation and love for the grace and love of God. Now, the word tetelestai was also a military term. When battles were over and the war was won, a general or king might shout, Tetelestai! Victory! Our enemy has been defeated. When Christ shouted to Telestai, it was a shout of victory. It was a declaration that every enemy of his and his people had been defeated once and for all. You know, if you belong to Christ, victory is yours over every enemy. Romans 8, 35-37 says, Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than victorious conquerors through him who loved us. Nothing can defeat us. Not even our greatest enemy, Satan. Oh, but he'll mess with you, man. He will mess with you. He will try to bully you and scare you. And he'll mess with your health. And he'll mess with your family. He'll mess with your marriage. He'll mess with your plans, your finances. He'll throw doubt and temptation at you. He'll try to convince you that the outcome for the fight for your soul and your well-being have not been determined. And you know what? He's a big, fat liar. It's been determined. We win. And listen, if he succeeds in knocking you down, get up. He can knock you down, but he can't knock you out. As you continue to believe in the goodness and the love of God, as you continue to trust in his promises, as you cling to and claim the victory that was won for you at the cross, you will experience more and more the sozo, the shalom of God. Because it belongs to you. You're a child of God. Don't forget that. 
want you to repeat after me. And go ahead and close your eyes and let this be internalized as you repeat this after me. Because of what Christ has accomplished for me. Oh, I can't hear you. Because of what Christ accomplished for me. Let me say it and you repeat. Because of what Christ accomplished for me. At the cross. Nothing can defeat me. Sickness can't. Problems can't. Hurt can't. Temptation can't. Failure can't. Even death can't. I will not doubt. I will not grow discouraged. I will stand on the love, faithfulness, and promises of God. And I declare, I am victorious in Christ. Let's give Christ a hand. Word got out that a monk who had a reputation of being just an eloquent, powerful speaker was going to be speaking on a Good Friday service at a church. And he was going to be talking about the love of God. So the people crowded into this very small church to hear him speak. And when it was time for his message, he had the sanctuary darkened. And then the monk lit a candle. And he walked to a crucifix that was hanging on the wall. And he held the candle up to the image of Christ on the cross. Illuminating first the crowns, the crown of thorn on Jesus' head. He held it there for a while. And then he moved the candle to Jesus' left wrist and hand where the nails had pierced, his, pierced him and nailed him to the cross. And he paused. And then he moved the candle back across to the other side, to the right side again, eliminating the nails through Jesus' wrist. And he paused. And then he moved the candle, moved the candle down to the feet of Jesus where the nails had pierced his feet. And he paused. And then finally up to his side where the soldier had pierced his side with the sword. And then he blew out the candle and he said, go in peace. And everyone there said it was the most powerful, life-changing sermon they'd ever heard on the love of God. Let's pray. Would you spend some time reflecting on and giving thanks for what Christ did for you on the cross? Reflect on his love. Reflect on the victory that he won for you that belongs to you. And if you're here and you are not sure whether you have begun a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, if you're not sure that you belong to him, that you've placed your faith in him, 
so that he could forgive you and make you his. I want, you, I want to give you the opportunity to do that right now before we leave, before we continue in the service. If you would like to make sure that you belong to Christ, and I'm not asking if you want to join this church or anything like that, I'm just asking you to do your business with God. If you're not sure that you belong to him, that you've fully placed your faith in his son, Jesus Christ, then I'm going to pray a prayer out loud. And if this expresses your heart's desire, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer after me silently. But pray this. Father in heaven, I admit to you that I've sinned, that I have broken your commandments. I've not lived as you desire. I need your forgiveness and your power to change. I believe that Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that Jesus came to this earth as a man. I believe that Jesus suffered and died on the cross where he took the penalty for my sins upon himself. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead and is alive today. Jesus, forgive me. Come into my heart and life. Make me the person you created me to be. You know, with your eyes still closed, if you prayed that prayer to give your life to Christ, would you raise your hand so I can just see? Thank you. And I just want you to know Christ has heard your prayer and you belong to him and you are forgiven and all the victory that we talked about is yours. And you have eternal life and you've been adopted by the creator of the universe. You are his own son and daughter now and that's never going to change. Welcome to God's family. Can we show these? Just congratulate them. And And if you did pray, we'd love to talk to you at the end of the service. There's no pressure at all, but we would love for you to just come and join us over in the prayer room when the service is over and just let us have the opportunity to shake your hand and pray for you. Get you a Bible if you need a Bible to help you grow in your new walk with God.